Luck on Sunday. Brought to you by Whirlpool. Bet with the world. Steve Cawthon, who was inducted into the Hall of Fame, becomes the first person to be in the Hall of Fame in America and in the UK. That, of course, could uh, be the fate of Frankie Dottori in years to come. Who knows? What we weren't able to do yesterday officially was to crown the champion trainer or trainers, but it seems as though the break that John and Thady Gosden have on Aidan O'Brien is sufficient. And John Gosden is with us now. I'm not allowed to crown you and Thady yet, am I? No, but we've got to wait till December 31st. Do you want to come to the party? Aiden, Aiden's got <laughs> Aiden's got six in at Pontefract on Monday. I noticed. So yeah, I have. I remember he got close uh, about three years ago. He sent a van load over to Chelmsford in November, and I thought, mm. "Well, this is going on a bit." But actually, all joking aside, it does go to show that this is something that he's taken quite seriously. You know, it. I know you're not going to sacrifice good horses on the altar of trainers' championships, but it is something that means something to you. No, we had a little bit of that choice yesterday with Master Daff, because mm. you and I walked the course mm. with Angus Gold. And interestingly enough, it, it walked and the stick a lot better. But when I went out there after the first race and saw how they turned it over, when you start putting a horse in it for a full gallop, it was a way softer and looser than we thought. So uh, you bowled me a complete googly yesterday, because having walked the course with you and Angus Gold, I thought, well, this horse is going to run. Um, no doubt, because you were saying, yeah, it's good ground, quite like it, whatever. So what happened between the time I left you alone and the time that the horse was pulled out? Well, the walking the course is one thing. Yeah. But then you want to go and see when the horses have been over the first time, which I did, mm. down the back, and then talk to the jockeys coming in, and you immediately get a, a real feel for it. And the jockeys were clear what it was. I mean, one said heavy, another guy said horrible, someone else said loose, one said deep. Frankie said it was very soft and, and, and beautiful, was his words. So, but he was very happy he'd won the race. But no, it, it, it wouldn't have been the, the ground to run that horse on, trainer's title or not. It was a tough decision not to run him, but it's easy because he can go to California where normally you can recommend what the ground, know what the ground will be, mm. good to firm, firm. Uh, and you had to make the same decision with Inspiral earlier in the week as, <coughs> as well. I guess that was an easier one. Well, having seen... A gr group one mile of that race finishing slightly like strung out like the washing there. I'm very glad we didn't even <coughs> consider putting her in the race. Mm. What did you make of, of Big Rock <coughs> yesterday? It was a it was a pretty pretty extraordinary performance, wasn't it? I think he'd he'd have been on good to soft ground, good ground. I think he'd have beaten that field. The style, the pace he went, and the fact that he could sustain it for so long. He had all of those horses stone cold with three furlongs to run. Quite an achievement. It, it was a, a, a a bizarre performance, an extraordinary one, and a dominant one, and uh, a very important day for Aurelia Lemaitre, as we were as we were saying earlier on. If you had run in spiral in that race, do you think she would have just finished out with a washing and just not given a running well, at all? I think she'd have been with some of the others. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was uh, there was a phenomenal performance. She would have not liked the ground, so we wouldn't have run her anyhow. So, it's, so we're playing with theories yeah. there. I thought that, that Tahira, she's mm. tiny, isn't she? She ran a blinder, but couldn't get near him. And I'm pleased for the jockey because he got a bit of a ticking off after the moolah. Yeah, and he got a bit of a ticking off from all of us after the after the uh, Nassau stakes, didn't he, when Ryan Moore and Jim Crowley uh, delivered him some local Sussex knowledge. Well, if you think you're going to get up Ryan Moore's inner, you're not. You learned quickly there. Yeah, happily. He got out and clear yesterday. Give me a word on Nashua yesterday. She hated the ground. Just, just, just couldn't, couldn't handle it at all. It. No, spinning her wheels on it. Yeah. Okay. And as far as the others are concerned, were you at all surprised that Trollerman won? No, he's been in the form of his life. He won his last two races in great order. I was 
surprised that he handled the ground so well. Obviously, you know, the ammo racing horse in front has gone hard. Frankie's cruised to it. Ryan is at work. And then I think the, the clever thing was that Frankie didn't throw everything at it straight away. They've got four to go, testing conditions. And it's a fascinating race that he actually managed to that he let Ryan go by, collect it again, and suddenly saw the other horse faltering. He thought, I'm going to get him. So we were having a bit of a debate earlier on before you came in as to whether <laughs> Kiprios was a little bit of a monkey and pulled himself up in front or not. Well, I wouldn't ever talk derogatory fashion about anybody else's horse, but there was this point where he looked like he had it under control, but he, he wasn't then drawing away. And Frankie hadn't gone hard for Trawlerman, and then he thought, right, bring him wide, don't let him go and look the other horse in the eye. It's something we did years ago with the Horse Observatory winning the QE2. Mm beating Giants. Kevin Darley. Yeah, we didn't come too close to them. The plan was to come wide and Giants calls we never saw. It's in this case they were close enough, but it was a superb performance from, from horse and jockey. Um, do you think that's Frankie Dettori's last day in England? I'm quite clear. <coughs> We've been discussing this for three months, four months. Uh, you and the plan of are you, are, you, are you bored with this conversation? <coughs> no, I'm not. It's just that Frankie and I have talked it through. It's, it's very clear that you can't stop Stone Cold, Cold Turkey. That is something that would not suit him in one way. There's that very interesting, Brian O'Driscoll, the yep. great centre for Ireland, yep. after the Raw. You know, for an athlete, as it's pointed out, you don't die once, you die twice. Mm. I told Frankie and I discussed this. He actually took the quote and used it on, on, a, on a racing deal, on a TV talk sport the next mm. day, actually. But the point is that if you've been completely committed every day into a... a training, fitness, riding horses, whatever, your rugby player, you are in a zone, and it's very hyped suddenly to stare at a vacuum. Mm. The other thing Frankie feeds on the crowd, he's had a very good example of that yesterday, but in the rugby game, you've got a cauldron around you, people scrambling, it lifts you, and suddenly that's gone. That's why a lot of them collapse, their, their mind just goes, and they have, they're awful people, they start hitting the bottle and everything else. So for any athlete to stop, you die then, mm. when you, ret you retire from there, and then you die when you die. That's the time. And I think for him, he couldn't face that. And so we talked about California, and that was planned from a long way out. He enjoyed his time there last yeah. year, rented the house. He's got himself a place in Pasadena, Airbnb or whatever it is. And Catherine's got bored with the, the dark winters that we have here. I mean, so we, we were all in, we're all in sympathy <laughs> with this, yeah, to and be so honest. So it worked well. And it's very clear to me, I teased him, I said, I know what's going to happen. You're going to ride there, you're going to ride Kansas Saturday, you ride all the Middle East, Bahrain, Qatar, yeah. Saudi, Dubai, that gets you to the end of March. You try and find the uh, Kentucky Derby horse, that takes you to May. Oh, funny thing, Royal Alaska's coming up. Mm. And I said, you and John Velasquez, he's a great friend of his, you'll be competing for rides at Alaska. But as a, see, the thing that surprised me, obviously, we know this because we, we we're talking about this on the show for the last God knows how many weeks. Nobody was particularly surprised that he's going to California. It was an open secret, whatever, and you you busted him at Newmarket as well, which he was very cross well, about. Well, I, I, I teased him because yeah. he, he had let the cat out of the bag before that little fiesta that you took charge of last yes, night. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, so what the one thing that the one thing that surprised me was when he said, "I'm actually." relocating lock, stock and barrel, going to live in America and actually basically live out my riding days there for as long as they'll have me. 
So it's kind of an open-ended... Well, absolutely, because... Is know, that, is, do you think that can work yes, really well? absolutely, because first of all, you've got to realise they're, they're only riding three, four days a week, mm. OK? You go there in the morning, breeze, horses, beautiful weather, OK? Pleasant. You then get ponied to the start, so you don't have to canter a horse to the two-mile start at Newmarket with a Zarowicz or something. You're ponied to the start, everything's done for you, you have your jockey agent, you might be riding in Florida, he does all your travel, everything, Ron Anderson's his name, mm -hmm. he's, a yeah. he's a great friend of ours. And, and I can tell you that it's, it's a very nice life, there's no travelling. I mean, for these jockeys in this country, they're up and down, they're going everywhere. They're riding work, 5.36 in the morning, driving all day, they're not allowed saunas, which is wrong, so they're having to turn the heating on in the car with a bloody tracksuit on. And from my point of view, they have a very, very hard life here. Very draining physically and mentally. But actually, compared did, to the American job, didn't you hit that? Didn't you hit the nail on the head earlier on when you talked about his need to be doing something and his need to be busy and not just to fall apart? Insofar as actually, ironically, given the fact that he's now fifty-two or whatever he is, he's going to be busier in terms of the amount of horses he rides than he is now because now it's high days and holidays or whatever and a few rides it's a few not difficult ones. I know it's not but he's actually getting more action because he's quite happy over yeah, but there a long to ride time six ago. or seven in a day where yeah. he's not here because he's, all... he's riding for 50 grand a pop there and it's yeah. five grand a pop here exactly well I would never have him doing that you no see. I know back in when he, he came to me uh, and, and Rachel sorted out that he went to ride in the Japan Cup after the little hiccup in 93 and Barney Curley brought him round and he rode f for us those three, four years as retained jockey, he was champion jockey, 230 winners, 220 winners. Unbelievable. But he came to me in May of the third year and he said, I'm worn out. And I said, right, this is the end of this. And mm. Finish off this year, be champion jockey. From then on, you just be very selective where and how you ride. And right now in, the, in what you call the twilight of his career, we've been very selective where mm. we go. But there's, a, a, balance. there's a balance, last isn't there? Year. There's a balance. But his fitness has been amazing this year. He's been in the zone, riding quite beautifully. And just turning up now for Santa Anita, for those meetings, flying down to Florida, maybe going back to New York, is going to suit him. And if you stopped him, I tell you what, he'd drive Catherine completely mad, poor girl. She'd have to have him locked in the garage or something. All right, can we stop talking about Frankie's story and talk about you for a minute? Does the same apply to a trainer? Do you die twice? Right. I, I, I don't know. I don't thrive on, I don't need the adulation. I don't need the roar of I'm the I'm not crowd. talking about the adulation, I, but, I'm, I but I'm talking know. about the action. Oh, I think uh, people enjoy being around horses, and I love working with Thady. It's great. And he's young, and they see things differently. And when you've done something this way all your life and they suddenly come up with a suggestion, you think, oh, I never thought of it from that angle. So he's sharpened me up a lot, I mm. can tell you. I enjoy working with him. Whether I stay on the license for a long time or not, it's an entirely different matter. The funny one is Mark Johnson. He said, you know, I've come off the license and Charlie's working me harder than I've ever worked. Mm. So I think from that point of view, as long as you're there with the horses in the morning, it doesn't matter whether you're on the license or not. It's interesting you mentioned them because I get the feeling that, you know, Mark's a strong personality. He's an individual thinker. He's been a great innovator in the game. I speak to him now. I see a guy who appears to be quite relaxed, allowing Charlie to kind of take the responsibility and be told, pretty much to told what to <laughs> do. Um, I... Uh, would that be the same? Would you I be happy to do that? I suppose so. I mean, they, they work very, in, very much in harmony. I mean, Charlie's obviously older. He's 32 mm. and a qualified vet and everything else. But we'll just work it along as we please. It's our decision how we do it. But uh, 
right now, I, I, I love being around the horses. So I'm not going to change that. And I, don't, I think Rachel would have to, have to have to lock me in the garage <laughs> if there was nothing else to do. On a personal level, um, how, how satisfying is it to be able to have a family member on the <coughs> licence with you? Was there a time at Clarehaven when you thought, well, I don't think I've got anyone to hand this business to? No, I think it's fantastic that he wanted to do it. But it's not easy for any young trainer now because he said he wanted to do it. I said, look me in the eyes. This is your idea, not my idea. There's no mm. sense of obligation. He said, no, I really want to do it. I said, right, that's great. Now the bad news. I'm 70. Most of my clients are older than me. And this is a big issue. Yeah. yeah. So what do you do? You work hard. Mm. And find people who want to work horses. It, is, it's not is, easy. And is it working? Oh, God, it's working at the moment. But it's the same for any young trainer in the country. It's not an easy time to get going. We don't want to get negative about it. But uh, it's not like the economy is buoyant. It's... Uh, you know, racehorse is a luxury item, so it's not necessarily the first thing on, on people's expenditure list. It get, gets, gets down the list. Um, have you been pleasantly surprised by anything in terms of incoming owners to the yard? Has money come from new places or no, not think, really? You know, or are I we think, mining the same scene? I think, no, I think obviously the Middle East is important. International ownership here is important. And I think if we, if we lose that, then I, well, we'll see the quality of our racing will drop off very mm. fast. There's no doubt about that. Fortunately, we had the export markets, America, Australia, Hong Kong, we know all of that. But that's exporting your horses. How do, you, how do you regenerate the business? And these are big issues and probably not something I want to get into a political debate on right now. But also, we've got to have the horses to be able to export, haven't we? That's oh, the yeah, point. Yeah. We've got to keep breeding them to export. The them. It's industry. all very well to be a trader, but you've got to have something to trade. Oh, yeah. I mean, no one understands how tough it is breeding horses. I mean, it is a very, it can be pretty soul-destroying. Nature tells you who the boss is. And just breeding the horses to get a, a, an athlete there that's sound, healthy, everything. There are a number down there, a little foal born with a problem. Mares slip, mares don't get in foal. I mean, it's the toughest thing ever, breeding. Rachel and I... Have you stopped uh, doing it now? Well, we cut back because nature... I, did, you know, I, did, well, I didn't see quite as many home no, we, we had, <laughs> you know, one poor mare died foaling. I mean, these things happen. And, uh, and certainly nature suddenly mm. tends to reduce the numbers. You know, we're still at it, but she's told me I better sharpen up. I'm not, we're not as good as we were. Well, the problem is, once you breed a Royal Ascot winner and sort of straight off the bat, yeah. it's, a, it's a long way down from there, isn't it? Well, it was great. Our first mare, we got the first foal won a group two. So I was having lunch with Prince Khaled Abdullah, who developed Judgment Farms, as you know from nothing. And I said, the first one's a group too. My wife and I are very happy. I said, what, what do you advise us to do? And he looked at me and said, stop now. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2008, of course, Frankie Dettori rode you the Breeders' Cup Classic winner at Santa Anita, going back to where we started. And I very vividly remember you saying, with Rachel, on air, um, I think it was at ESPN in those days, saying, uh, I had a house in the Hollywood Hills. I don't know why I ever left. Um, have you worked out why you left now? Well, Rachel was the one who had to make the sacrifice. She was running a pretty big business there. And then we got off to come back uh, to train in England with, uh, with Dali, with Sheikh mm. Mohammed, which was, which was great. We had intended to go to America for a year and stayed 11. Rachel, obviously, was a British barrister and then became a, a California lawyer. And for her, it was a big sacrifice to come back. And yeah, in the first five years I was back, yes, I, I, I regretted it. I thought I'd made a mistake. Vincent O'Brien told me I should have stayed. I made a mistake. It was a better business there. Could you have the turned way, turtle and gone back at that point? You, say, but so you never chase your tail. In. Don't chase your tail in life. And uh, you know, it stayed here and had a wonderful time. Yeah. And I'm very happy. But the first four or five years, it didn't make a lot of sense. There was a booming business there, and racing here was having its structural issues. Now American racing, fashion, you know, enormous challenges. So uh, 
No, definitely in the right place. But it took me till it took me about ten years to work that out. I mean, you still spend a bit of time in in America, and I know you've got a lot of very close friends there. A couple of years ago in in Del Mar, I saw how how fond you were of still of Southern California and a lot of the contacts that you'd made there. Um, can America turn the tank around with with Heiser and Haiwu and the the more integrated regulation that they've got now? I hope they do. I think uh, obviously Churchill Downs in the spring was a massive problem. Then they got the rains at Saratoga. And you get a rain on a dirt track, it goes to slop, which mm. means you're racing on the base. And then they had those catastrophic injuries that occurred at Saratoga. That's tough. It's on NBC. You know as well as you. It's a hard thing, that. I oh. think they'll overcome it. I very much hope they do. Um, I certainly feel that they're trying to move everything in the correct direction. I've had a bit of a personal journey with this, I think, over the last year particularly. Is this the end for dirt racing, do you think? Do you think it, they need or not? Well, dirt racing, you know, the, as Bobby Frankel would say, it's speed training. Mm. Okay, so the, the horses go from the gate. And dirt training is, is different. It's the speed of the first break from the gate, the first quarter, into the bend. And then all about switching leads. And obviously, as you well know, the last quarter is run slower than the first quarter in most dirt races. It's very not so often you see them collect and go. And often you have the sense that a horse is quickening and actually the ones in front are slowing. So dirt racing, they're a different breed of horse. Yeah. So you're talking about the whole breed industry, their shape, their form, their shoulder, the cannon bone, the paston, the, the hoof. Dirt horses are different creatures. So it's not horses. as simple as just saying, no, right, let's not, change, and the, that's change the game. We could go out there and win a Breeders' Cup Classic on the synthetic. Mm. And I, because our horses can travel and quicken, that's what we do. Collect, 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 travel. We want that last quarter if we can to be the best. Now, I always remember the owner of Curlin, whom we beat in that yeah. classic that year, and he said, God damn, I don't like running on this plastic. And uh, you, you, you are basically saying, if you get rid of dirt racing, you, you're going to affect the whole breeding industry. And there's suddenly a lot of stallions, fabulous stallions, mm. are going to have nowhere to go. I mean, I don't want to blow any more smoke in his direction, but he's not going to be up anyway. That was quite a good ride on Raven's Pass, wasn't it? I was having to watch it the other day for a bit of a tribute we were doing, and... He, he had a target on Robbie Alvarado's back all the way we around. He had it all planned. He did have a different plan. And then I pulled a car over driving from Santa Anita and I just turned, just put it into the park. And I looked at him and I said, this is dark, going out in the morning to canter the horse the day before the race. And I said, no, I think we've got to grab him out the gate, get him covered and let him go at the end. He said, OK, because he had, was thinking about being right up on the pace and luckily he got it. He rode him quite beautifully on the day, because mm. of course, as you say, it was synthetic and and not dirt. It's interesting, though, talking about discrete breeds. How we're now getting a horse like Justify becoming a dominant sire in in mm. Europe. Do you think that is good for the global game? Very much. So, so it's it's almost you know evocative of Northern Dancer again, isn't it? You know, having Amer an American dirt bloodline. I think it's very, I think it's very exciting that a horse can do that, produce good, great dirt horses and turf horses. He's, he's going to be a little bit the exception. Mm. But I think that is... And Australia as well. And Australia opens up no end. I mean, funny enough, Sadie was there uh, with Bob Baffert, and he, he led him down to get him weighed and bef saw the horse being built up to his first race, a maiden win mm. as a three-year-old. Mm. I mean, rather like Jean-Claude Rouget's horse this year, who wins at Cannes-Sumer 
on the all weather in January yeah. at the Wine Cup Champion three-year-old of Europe. And he saw him come through with maiden allowance and onto the Kentucky Derby as a three-year-old, didn't, didn't race it too. But he is some size, that horse, an amazing horse. And I think that's exciting to have a stallion that can do both. What I'm saying is there'll be a lot of horses in Kentucky who are very much dirt horses, and that's the type of horse they are, and they're trained that way. They train them a little differently to the turf horse. And of course, you mentioned Justify kind of flying across the skyline like a comet, and that was it. He was gone after mm. the Triple Crown. And mm. then you talk about Jean-Claude Rouget's horse, mm. Ace Impact. That's it. Extraordinary. No, soon, no sooner have we fallen in love with him than he's taken away from us. I mean, yeah. how do you feel when you see that? You know the realities of the industry, but as a, as a sportsman, as a fan, do you feel a bit cheated? Well, obviously, he's the son of Cracksman. And when he won the Peter Shockey Club, I was there. The way he quickened and broke the track record, I think, and then what he did in the art, that is what it's about when you see a horse cut a field down like that. Fabulous horse. I, I felt sorry for Jean-Claude that he's been retired. I'd just love to have seen him race. I wouldn't want to see him necessarily running where we were yet, but just to see him race at four. But, you know, they've chosen to go to stud, and I hope he's a good stallion. But I think it's, uh, it's sad for racing mm. when they retire like that. One swallow doesn't make a summer, but can Cracksman be a, be a proper stallion? He looks like he's heading in the correct direction. He had, you know, he's a good-looking, well-bred horse. And, you know, he's, he was the highest-rated son of Frankel, so he's got Frankel to help him along. And 17500 for his nomination at the moment, in the context of paying whatever your hundred, uh, mm. however many hundred thousand you have to pay for Frankel and however many hundred thousand you have to pay for Dubai, it doesn't yeah. seem too bad. No, I think it's very reasonable, and Mr Oppenheimer, I'm sure, won't be doing anything silly by jumping it up. Talking about the breeding industry, do these stud fees need to come down? Yes. A lot of them would have to come down, because for people to breed, it's tough. It's just too expensive. I mean, the, 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 the top quality that you can't get into, they can hold their price, but others will have to be definitely re recalibrated. And the, the sales, <coughs> talking to people who are consigning you know, good quality stock that they were struggling to sell to mm. make any kind of a profit the other day and saying that actually trainers don't have the orders to fill Correct. was really quite, quite alarming. Um, you're not a, a dude merchant as a general rule, but how worried should we be about the future of the sport at the moment? We've got to be concerned, but there's a lot we can do about it. There's a lot that we can pull together on in the promotion of it. And there's a lot of areas that they're working on. Whether changing the fixture list the way we have, I hope it works. Personally, I'm concerned from the point of view of our staff in the industry, Sunday racing. I mean, Sunday if you, evenings. If, yeah, I mean, remember about where Frankie's gone to California. It was three days, dark days, no racing. In the old days, we raced Wednesday to Sunday, mm. two dark days. And... Uh, you would have great crowds, 30,000 on a Wednesday, 60,000, 70,000 on the weekend. Now, my worry is if you're racing 364 days of the year, which effectively what we're going to be doing if we're racing Sundays, I'm going to have to, as a trainer, put a line through certain meetings and certain days. Because staff, you can't expect people to just keep go seven days a week. You can't. Why would they want to stay in the industry? And if you take out the Sundays away from people, it makes it very, very tough. And this needs to be thought through. But then the responsibility falls back on you to um, modernise your rostering, doesn't it? Yes, but then... Because you know, you, seven days a week, you're not asking the yeah, staff to work seven but days a week. But are you going to have enough people? Are there enough people in the workforce in the industry? And remember, it's, uh, you work outdoors. It's not all beautiful weather. Mm. And a lot of younger people, they don't want to do that. And they don't want to necessarily work with animals. And then that 
you know, that life, the urban mentality now, that's not a na life that comes naturally to people. So, yeah, we, I think we've, we've forgotten the staffing issue here, and that will well be a problem. Certainly for me, I would try and put a line through Mondays, try and put a line through Tuesdays. So you almost create your own dark day. You do, and which is, we've never got a race, you should win with a horse. It's tough to, to explain, but uh, I think we've got to think of the staff in the industry, and that's been forgotten. No point saying you get an extra £100 or something from the race course. That does not solve the issue. You are, however, in quite a luxurious position in being able to strike a line through Monday. Most trainers won't be because they will no, need to take the, the problem. opportunities. I mean, if I do, it won't be easy. Mm. Particularly, there's a particular race that you should run a horse in, and then you don't want you want to give people a day off. But we're going to have to look at that, and everyone's going to have to look at it. And you, you, it's something that hasn't got enough, and it just can't throw a bit of money at it. It is called having enough time off. And c can you keep good spirits in the in the stable still? Can you keep a workforce happy in the way that racing is structured at the moment? It's demanding on them. Every, we're demanding on all of us. It's seven days a week, you know, the, being with the horses. You don't just, you can't shut off the old lights at uh, five thirty, six o'clock on Friday and come back on Monday morning. It's not like, not like that. So to that extent, yes. But if you're having success and winners, there's a great feel in the stables. Let's be honest. And if things are not going well, it's tough. The, the old heads drop a bit. Same with jockeys. <laughs> Same with all of us. We're all human beings. We all have emotions. But I think on the whole, you know, we all operate, we're all Christian name terms. So sometimes when we have a winner, someone say, what's the name of the group? I can give the first name. I don't know what their last name is. We don't really use them much. So we try and make it as much of a family as you can, a family feel to it. But, you know, the bigger the operation, the harder that is. But on the whole, there's a great spirit in the yard. And there's certainly one in our stables right now. When you're hiring, what do you look for? Oh, you look for people that are, that are keen and interested and passionate about it. But, you know, for another, if it's just a job, that doesn't quite work out. But, you know, finding the right people, it's tough now. They're not just, they're not just out there. So, but you wouldn't just... If somebody turned up on your door and said, I want to work for, for John and Thady Gosden, you'd put them through a, a process, sure. Well, yes, you do. You, you, well, you interview them, don't yeah. you? It's simple as that. Of course you do. And then you've got to check references. There's no doubt that uh, people are bigger than they used to be. Mm. Getting people of the right size, it's not like in a national hunt yard, they can ride, you know, can ride heavier. And getting the right people, light, athletic, and, and riding a racehorse is, a, is an, an incredible mm. skill. It's not, it's not just getting up on any old thing and going around the place. It's not just an old riding horse. It takes enormous skill, and it takes a great deal of courage and a great nerve. And this mm. is something that's very underestimated, particularly in our authorities sometimes. They think, oh, people will just be there. They won't. And the other thing, of course, what we've had, uh, we had very good riders coming in from around the place and abroad, obviously India, Pakistan, and obviously from some from South America. And a lot of people came from Central Europe, but then with Brexit, that all ended. Mm -hmm. And we have to look at that, whether you, whether you approve or not. But in order to be able to, to staff this industry properly, we have to open our minds. We have to talk to the ministers about it, but they, as usual, they're making slow progress. Um, where is... Uh racing's position relative to um, society and to, and to popular culture, do you think? Well, obviously, in the old days, I mean, you remember when the show jumping was on BBC. I mean, the world has changed, and everyone is fascinated by football. Absolutely right. Great international sport. The rugby. Last night, lucky at Frankie's party, we could watch the rugby. Heartbreaking, though, it was at the end, but 
you know, it, that is uh, it, it's in front of everyone's consciousness right now. I thought you were you were too busy looking at Ronan Keating to be. Well, I, I thought Frankie's duet with Ronan Keating was very impressive. Is, by, by the way, there is there is evidence of this on on social media. I think somebody has put a put a clip of it. No, he, he hit the notes pretty well. Yeah, no, I he thought. Did okay. Sam, he's got another career coming he did, up. He did He'll okay. be an old crooner now till he's eighty. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, anyway, back to where we were, and and racing's place in in society and how society looks at us. Well, it changed, hasn't it? Because of an urbanised society, we're very different to the one that, you know, when I grew up with, mm. racing was in every newspaper. They had racing journalists. They don't really have that much in the, in the Telegraph here, in the Times, and in the Sun, do pretty good ex exposure for us. But then newspapers are going to be something of the past. It'll just all be on tablets and the old print will go. So look, we've got a wonderful industry and it's great to go out. It's a wonderful day out, out and there, seeing beautiful horses riding, racing. We've got a lot of positive stuff to sell, but to say that it's in the consciousness of people mm. as it was 50 years ago, of course it isn't, because everything changes in life. And, and in terms of um, the sport's ability to self-regulate, and I'm thinking particularly about um, the welfare of horses mm. and about how we project that to, to wider society. Um, how do you think we're doing? I think we're doing very well. Do you? And I think we're on the case the whole time and should continue to be so. Um, and I think that is a, an essential that it's done. But I mean, let's face it, there is a risk in anything. And we must not be naive about this. I mean, what interests me is I, I remember sitting on a, a, a committee for some, quite some years at Stoke Mandeville. And, you know, in life, things happen. Do you know the third most dangerous place you can possibly go in terms of spinal injuries? The bathroom. Yes, cars, mm. yes, motorbikes, mm. yes, horses, mm. everything else. The bathroom. The slip in there, back, forward, break the neck, high, quadriplegic, paraplegic. Now, the thing about welfare is, you know, a horse is a creature. It's out there. It's galloping. You cannot take all risk out. But if you follow everything, every rule down, you actually won't let them out the box because the risk they might come out, slip, kick someone, mm. and you have to be careful. And if you follow everything through, you won't go to the bathroom unless you've got a good grip in there and you don't step into the bath or the shower. So I think there's a little bit of a habit in, 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 in Western society right now to somehow deny nature and try and make everything so safety conscious that in the end you take away what is normal life. And I, it's, a, it's a strong thing to say this, but I noticed that Bobby Charlton died yesterday, a wonderful man. But we can't use the word die anymore. Everyone passes. It is as though we're in denial of mortality even. And I think there's something in our culture that is making us not face the true reality of life. And then you only have to look at, you don't have to look very far to see the real reality of life. So when you come to welfare in our game, yes, I think we're doing a great job. I think it's being handled very well. But as I remember when a lovely horse hurt itself at Ascot one day, I said, I've seen a horse galloping around a field. That can happen to mm. you. Know, and suddenly they've broken a leg. It can happen. And it's the same if I, I went up a set of stairs going to the wrong studio here. I half took a funny step going down. Next thing I go falling down the stairs, I might not have made it in. I mean, you know, risk <laughs> and injury happens all the time in life, OK? <laughs> um, I want to drill down a little bit more into that because... Um, you talk about needing to be to be truthful and, and to not dissemble and not, not, not to use euphemisms and to, to accept accept what we are and, and, and what we do. Do you think the sport as a whole needs to have a little bit more confidence in that respect? It's something people have talked about quite a bit, particularly when they talk about the whip and the Grand National Chains and all that sort of thing. 
does the sport need to be more confident in what it is? It needs to be more self-confident. Yeah, that's what There's I mean. people out there, you know, we love horses. That's why we do it. We passionately love, I love being with horses. They're like people. Mm. Some, some are wonderful, some can frustrate you. Yeah. But that is, that is, never be underestimated. But I mean... But also, aren't you allowed to say, I love winning and I love being the best and I like all these things that people think are a bit kind of... A bit vulgar and a bit, and you, you know, well, you're using the animals like or whatever. Otherwise, but the whole thing I know, but you know what, you know, you know what I mean. Uh, people are very sort of, um, yeah. you know what I'm saying. What bashful? Yeah, well, the, the, because this is a sport that relies upon our, uh, you know, codependency with with a, with a, with an animal, and that animal has um, limited agency, and we are the ones that are asking those animals to do things. That if you are too too brash about your intentions, it can almost be seen to be, um, you know, not having enough consideration for what you're working with. Yes, but I mean, you know, as a trainer, our job is to, is to send the horse to the races fully fit, mm. in top mental, physical condition, and to try and ride, have the horse ridden in the race that suits the horse, suits its strengths best and everything else. That's what we're trying to do all the time. And I think it would never be underestimated that the welfare of, the, of that animal, they live in the lap of luxury with us, is essential. And obviously, rehoming and retiring, it's easier for the fillies to go into a breeding program, but for a lot of colts and geldings, we have to think about that. I think that we've set some very good programs up. And I think, you know, you go to other parts of the world and you think, well, they're way behind us on this. But I mean, you know, nature will, as I said earlier in the end, the nature will tell you who the boss is. Um, you have at times during your career got quite stuck into the politics of the sport. Do you feel... You've got time for that on a Sunday morning. Funnily you enough. Have, I mean, you must it, have yeah. got to bed about no, it, too. Uh, well, that, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be selling it, too. Um, we, <laughs> um, uh, do you feel a little less involved in the, in the politics of it now than you were, say, 10, 15 years ago? Well, to a degree, but, uh, you know, Rachel was president of the ROA for five years, yeah. so very involved in it. And I'm involved to the extent that when Martin Crudges sent that letter to the minister, Lucy Fraser, the yep. other day, yep. I was very keen on this whole affordability checks. So you have a gambling commission that is set out with an intent, and they're not listening. They've gone in there with a plan, and they're going straight through, and they're not listening to us at all. I pointed out that in my pocket right now, it's a casino. It's also a telephone. Mm. It's also a camera. And the point about it is that those online gaming shows, they're there, you can clock in, very bright colours, they watch your pattern, they get the algorithm of you, and then they keep flooding you with more. Companies like 888, all of them using those. That is what should be targeted. Not use this sledgehammer to break the nut and take down, betting on a horse race requires, believe it or not, intellectual pursuit. You've got to work out the draw, the ground, the trainer, the jockey, the horse's form, its pedigree, the distance, everything, the competition. It's, a, it's, it's not something like flicking, but it's equivalent to having these slot machines in, your, in there. It's, it's, they're geared to take your money, and it's that should be targeted, and that's where the addiction comes with young people, which is frightening, and it's right there in their pocket 24-7. And that is what the, the Gambling Commission should be targeting, rather than someone who sensibly bets, having to have affordability checks, and an invasion of their privacy. If someone starts asking my bank account, I'm not going to show them. It's not their damn business. 
And is that why you wouldn't show them? Because you think it's an invasion of privacy? It's an invasion or is of it privacy. because you actually And it's think a nanny it's a, state, and I don't or approve. It, or is it for a lot of people, because it's actually just a pain as well? Well, it is, but also, you know, it's the old story, isn't it? You're going to wind up, people go to the unregulated markets, the black markets, okay? That's happening very, very fast. But what did they happen when they had prohibition in America? You had speakeasies, right? Mm. You can't stop. If people want to have a bet, they have a bet. They want to have a drink, they're going to have a drink. And I think we have to face that. But I think the Gambling Commission is, sorry to use our term, completely blinkered in their approach. I hope the message gets through uh, to Lucy Fraser. And I think Martin was right to starkly state it. And that's why I was very keen to make the point. And they should be targeting the gaming, not what our business we're symbiotic with gambling. Yeah, but this is quite a, this is quite interesting because there is a, as you say, a huge symbiosis between horse racing and, for better or worse, the the major bookmaking firms. It is not in the interest, the commercial interests. I bring Richard in on this, of the major bookmaking firms for horse racing to be saying, please, can you separate the wallets? And that is where we're in a little bit of a philosophical dilemma and have been for the last three or four years on this. On one hand, we say we want to be seen as something a little bit different. On the other hand, in order for us to say that, we need to be almost doing down what is the most profitable aspect of that industry with which we have developed a Faustian pact. Yes, I mean, look, this is very hard to cover in a short period of time, but you need to go back in time. Mm. Because I think when I first got into racing, one of the most respective relationships was between you and your bookmaker. You got call bets to your name. You would settle those before you left the course as a badge of honour. Gradually, that became more faceless. The computers interacted. It was, you know, big VIP accounts between 2005, 2008, when, if you like, everyone was panning for that golden nugget but everyone would just dismiss everything else. No longer do people work accounts that might make a small profit and there is some direct relationship. What happens now is you're trying to grab the golden nugget, squeeze it, and then move on to the next one. And because of that, computers now drive who is allowed to bet and how much. And the, the audience John was elucidating to there about those that view it as a passionate pastime, far more interesting than Countdown that used to follow us on Channel 4, far more interesting than any game you see on television, that has been lost because those people find it very, very difficult to get on. And where the bookmaking yeah. industry needs to be better is to put their hands up and say, well, if you're talking black markets for affordability checks, you're also talking black markets for restrictions. You have to keep the population who are betting on side with racing, otherwise it moves to the side. And as John said, you would target roulette where you will not win in the long term. Mathematically impossible. You may win in the short term. You won't win in the long term. You may win in racing. You need to foster that. Yeah. And you need to make people participate in the same way that I did when I was younger, mm. that my bookmaker was someone who I valued a relationship with. That's gone. And I don't know really who's to blame for that. Don't you think? I think where Martin Crudders has nearly got there with that letter, and, and, and it's something I'm seeing a little bit more now, and uh, uh, highlighted a bit more clearly, is that the people who are the, the biggest supporters of the sport and the biggest contributors to the levy are the ones that are most likely to be adversely affected by both of those, of those opposing forces that you mentioned. Yes, I mean, and I think, it's again, it's interesting, you know, John specifically on Sunday evenings for the staff, whereas I know the, the submission that was made by the bookmakers to that um, premierization is that they believe Sunday evenings is the greatest potential yeah. part of the week. And it's squaring that circle when the two come into conflict that is very, very difficult. And 
something not racing not been overly good at, John, has it really, no. to be honest, in terms of listening to each other and working out some sort of compromise? Because all the points are valid, but if you, if you don't know where you're going, you won't get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how well or otherwise are trainers, jockeys, stable staff represented in the industry now? And this is an area where you have been very well tuned in over the years. I think the trainers are well represented. The jockeys have had a few upheavals, uh, that's for sure, this year. But we're very good coming together mm -hmm. in a crisis. And we're very good at sort of slightly ignoring each other until there is a crisis. But that, I suppose, I is suppose the nature what of I mean life. Is where do you think what used to be called the Horseman's Group, now called the Thoroughbred Group, stands in terms of its power relative to the racecourses under the new structure? Well, we did have the tripartite agreement. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we have access to talk to anyone at any time. The BHA are always there to listen, whether it's acted on is another matter. I don't feel any corridors are shut to it. It used to be quite autocratic in the old days. But no, I think you can get your point across. There are enough meetings. I wouldn't question the openness of it, and I wouldn't question the fact that our concerns are looked at and debated. So as a whole, it works well. Of course, it's like everything, it could work better. But as you say, I haven't been on the political front foot for a long time. Um, do you want to be again or not, or are you done with that now? I, f I find long meetings a nightmare. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever regret not being more, I'm not just talking about horse racing, not being more politically active full stop? You know, Rachel could have been an MP. Uh, she still but, could be but an MP. No, she could have been an We're MP. We're talking about people, and they, they, now they say they want people with more experience, funny, life I'm, experience. It's a bit of a joke here, I suppose. She, she had the vote, and they, someone wanted to be the MP in our area. But they had a chap that they tried to plant into Cheshire and he was beaten by, by a local church candidate. And you don't need many votes, it's Conservative Party members only. And so they, she got a call from, uh, they got a call from Millbank here, Conservative Party headquarters, we're parachuting in. We had parachuted in and Rachel handed her votes over to, guess who? Matt Hancock. <laughs> so as you can see, political careers can have strange turns. We'd have been much better off with Rachel, but there we are, that was her chance. No, I think, you know, to be an MP is a pretty tough job, and you, it's not something you want to be taking on uh, at a certain stage of life. Okay, uh, now you've brought Matt Hancock up, um, you, you're going to regret this. But um, no, at, no. At one point in time, Matt Hancock was seen as a, a, a great friend to, to, to horse racing, pre-COVID, pre the jungle, and pre all the other things. He's, he rode out with us. So he won the charity race yeah. on Rachel's horse, which was great, and the money went to this. No, it, it was fine. But there was a problem with other politicians hubris and complete egomania and I'm afraid power can corrupt the mind and in the end I'm saying it was corrupt I'm saying that he just lost all sense of reason and that can happen to people but yes he was a big friend to racing and a big help so on a serious point this week he is was, has he just done it or has he got it has there he got the debate time allocated there's some time yeah. allocated yeah. for debate he's that's right yeah is he an asset or is he just a liability now well you know what do they say about reputations a lifetime to build and lost in what a day i don't know look he's there do a debate he knows the facts and figures and i and i wish him well i can say no more he's still our mp but he stands as an independent mm. now and, and he's, he's retiring at, like a lot of them at the next election
And given the by-election results this week, there is no guarantee, even in West Suffolk, that a Conservative candidate will be will be returned. The Conservative candidate now is is Nick Timothy, who yep. is a an ex special advisor for for Theresa May. If he, uh, well, more than that, he was Theresa May's right hand. Yeah, he's a very intelligent, very good man. Mm. So if he gets in, is he going to be an asset for horse racing? Oh yeah, it's in his constituency. Mm. I mean, if the, whatever the main industry in your constituency is, you, you're going to always look out for them. We are next to Cambridge. Yeah. And the Cambridge Science Park, the university, I, I, I got the plan when the first building went in, the Bursar of Trinity took me up there because you couldn't get a job for a lot of money in this country in 1973 for when we were on the floor. And uh, I got a job actually in Caracas, Venezuela, building a science park and went out with the plans of the science park. So is that why you went, basically, because the job market was, was, yeah. was so bad at the time? Oh, it was terrible. You couldn't get, I mean, it was the unemployment here, the inflation rate, well, the interest rate was 16%. I mean, and there was, there was desperate unemployment. It was a three-day work week, winter of our discontent. You might, yeah, you, yeah. Know, you were far too young. Well, I wasn't <laughs> born. Never mind right? far uh, too young. Was, right. lot of fun, I was far too young yeah, when I was well, born. Yeah. The point I'm making is that the science park, combined with all the medical work there in Ambrose and the hospital and AstraZeneca, is so powerful now mm. that actually we could be careful we don't become a sort of dormitory town to Cambridge. And, of course, you know, our MPs are aware of that. It's great having Cambridge there, but we want to work with them in transport and everything else. It's a, it's a long subject, this. Have you got another half an hour? <laughs> it's, quite, it's an interesting one, though, because it's one that we don't often explore. No, I just wondered whether or not you felt that local issues get swamped now by big agendas. You know, politics at the highest level does seem to be three-line whips and following. Yeah. Is there enough room for, you know, within getting your sounding board out there to your MP. And when I, the MP goes to Parliament, how big a chance does he get? Does the MP get enough time themselves? Do they have access to the correct civil servants or the ministers? Correct data lot, as well, because quite is, often you, it's frustrating to hear yeah, so much misquoted. I agree. And, I, you know, is our parliamentary system... A, you know, democracy always says is the, is the best of a bad bunch. You know, I, I probably don't want to live in a dictatorship. I certainly like living in this country. There's freedom of speech here and liber liberalism. You know, you... And I think people underestimate that. You go to other countries and you have a funny feel straight away, police states, you know. Mm. And I think from that point of view, we do have a, a functioning democracy. We should be proud of it. How does the voice get through? You know, with social media, I suppose, it gets through more than it used to. Does it get through in a balanced way, though? Is it all no, black and white? Absolutely rather, not. You know, debate absolutely. is always in grey, isn't it? And yet yeah. social media is one extreme no, or the other. No, I think it doesn't. And I think the problem with social media, everyone gets on it and... A lot of young people get on there and think, oh, that sounds having so much more fun than I am. I'm having a miserable time compared to that. So actually, yeah. it affects that in the wrong way, in a negative fashion. Yeah. Uh, do you use social media at all? No. Do you look at it? No. Ever? No. Would Thady? Doesn't appeal to you? Would Thady? Yes, that yeah. generation will. Mm. He covers that yeah. for me. I don't do it at all. No, I'm not interested in that. I it's mean, interesting, I... though, isn't it, how a lot of trainers have embraced it and it's really helped them gain owners. You look at someone like yeah. Fergal O'Brien on the jumps, that's been a massive tool yeah. in him building his operation. Mm. I think absolutely right, and I think you have, you have to do it from that point of view. But Thady handles all that side for me. <laughs> but also, interesting you mentioned Fergal O'Brien, Maddie, because Fergal has uh, a guy who is very, very good, Dr Simon, who does, yeah. who does his uh, social media for him and applies himself to it, not 24-7, like yeah. but all the time, and with guile and wit and skill, yep. and like anything, if you're going to do it, do it well, yeah. do it well or not yeah. at all. Absolutely yeah. right. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. is that something you think, in five years at Clarehaven, Clarehaven's going to be at Clarehaven, or you know whatever it is, on TikTok and 
I'm, I'm not. Sure. This isn't a joke. I mean. Don't why worry. doesn't Claire Haven? An old Luddite. Why doesn't? Why doesn't Claire Haven have a TikTok account to try and? Was run by the Chinese. <laughs> I think the I point is that you're not, if you're talking about opening up new markets, we've, we've hit the generation side, haven't we? You, yeah. Thady's aspect of getting new owners in from your yeah. old owners yeah. is going to be used that as a vehicle. You have to. You have to. And if you don't, you're going to miss the boat. And you're spot on right on what you said. Mm. Do you know what your last Twitter post was? No idea. I don't. I don't tweet. It was 11 years ago about elusive caves. Oh, was it? Written, was it did she winning the Falmouth or getting knocked out by the Falmouth or whatever it was? <laughs> I told you I'm not on Twitter. No. Whoever yeah, it was then, yeah, there was a, some, X, some, Brie, some Brie, yeah, oh, exactly, on X. Some, yeah. some, somebody, You've somebody been doing a bit of research. Some, some yeah. enthusiast, some in, no, my, my, my crack team of researchers have just <laughs> provided me with that piece, one, that piece one of tweet information. tweet 12 years ago. And that was it. See, there you are. At John Gosden. <laughs> um, so, do you anticipate that this arrangement that you've got at the moment, this joint licence, is just going to continue for the time being? I think it's very healthy. You've got Simon and Ed, you've got a lot of people... Roger's just come off. Yeah, but I really think it's a great idea. Uh, and I, 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 I got really upset years ago, I remember, you know, it's suddenly you hand your licence in, and the headline was, Dick Hearn quits. The headline in the Racing Post. Dick Hearn, you're in a wheelchair, battling on. You don't quit. I think the idea that, you know, because you don't hold a licence, the fact you can both be on there is very healthy. Mm. The more partnerships, the workload is more than it's ever been. That's the thing. You know, when I went to Vincent O'Brien, uh, and I, my interview was most interesting, I sat there quietly, not saying a word at breakfast. And uh, he said, well, it's very nice of you to come. Um, you see, I, I, I need an assistant here. Not very good, sir. And uh, would you be available? Well, yes, I would be. Well, that's fine then. Thank you. And that was very <laughs> easy. And that was it. That was the interview. And then I got really bold and I said, well, how many horses do you have, sir? Oh, I have 72 here. Huh? He was champion trainer in England that year. Mm. 72. Let me tell you, that's a pleasure if you've got 72 nice ones. It's the most wonderful thing. But the game is not like that anymore. And to that extent, I find the workload, you need two people to share it, quite mm. frankly. It's huge. Mm. Mm trainers, mm. for jockeys, it's a hard life to start. It is. And then with endless racing, my point, wall-to-wall -wall racing, it is incredibly demanding and very draining for people, physically and mentally. So thank you. I'd like to have three yeah, of the lights. You're not, you're not, <laughs> unfortunately, you're not fooling anyone. I know you're like the most plausible person in the sport, but you're not fooling anyone. As you said at the beginning of the show, people in horse racing don't retire, otherwise they die twice. Yeah, yeah no, I'll always be hovering around, I'm sure, uh, but I won't be getting in the way. The youth must take over in the end, that's for sure. Yeah, so who's going to be riding all the horses next year? Well, I think, uh, I think Kieran, Kieran in, I, in yes, pole position. We have Kieran Schumacher, who rides very well. Benoit de la Sayette rides extremely. Rab Havlin with me forever. So I'm actually, we've got a nice line-up of, of, of jockeys. We're really lucky to have them all. And they're good horsemen, mm. and they're fabulous in the morning, and the feedback is very, very important. Yeah, you, you, there are a lot of jockeys, great jockeys, that are actually hopeless in the morning. Can misguide you. I would never quote which ones, but famous jockeys. They'll just have you going up the wrong tree. But Frankie... Rab, all these guys we're talking about, very clever in the morning. You learn as a trainer, great feedback, because we don't work our horses flat out off the bridle. And I, I get a lot of guidance from them, and that's important, and a part of the team. What, so now what I think, sort of feedback would that be? Well, in terms of the... Well, obviously things like trip, movement, 
uh, everything on the type, the mentality of the horse, what they feel. I'm always interested in what a rider feels in every sense. Mm. And the old English, I got a great feel from it. Well, that's fine. Tell me why, too. But I found you get good, good work riders we have at home, top riders. Every day, look, we talk to them going out, we check, debrief coming in. That is an incredibly important part of, our, as you well know, of our system. And, and the idea that you just sort of watch and you don't talk to one and it's madness. It's all communication, communication. And our office is small. We've got assistant assistant, Thady and I, racing office manager, all in this tiny space. I don't believe in emailing into an office next door. Everything's discussed, every horse. So, and that's how it works. So would I feel that your jockey's interviews, if you like, are taking place over a period of time in the mornings, as in if you're thinking to oh, integrate yeah. a jockey, because yeah. you'd have planned a lot for Frankie retiring, yeah. you knew it would happen. Did you have a torrent of people in, or did you have people specifically in No, no, it would just mind? work how it naturally comes. And, and you know, with Frankie retiring, it wasn't like he was taking a, he was riding selectively where he rode, and uh, he will continue to do so. And I'm quite sure that uh, he'll be asking me about the first race of Royal Ascot. Do you think, do you Probably genuinely think so? I genuinely so this, think so. So this, yeah. so this is going to be an interesting one for you because well, the point that Richard was making before you came in, we're talking about trainers and curating horses' careers and stuff, and you said, why has John done what he's done? Because he can manage his own as well, as well as his horses. Yes, and there's not... two aspects to it. For me, John, I would blow smoke up, but you know, there's two aspects. There's managing the, the equine side, <coughs> the optimum trip, getting them, but then it's persuading the owners to some degree, mm. listening to them, yeah. but passing on the knowledge that's coming from the yard to persuade them to run in the right race. And mm. that must be a challenge if you have an owner who, for whatever reason, is mm. specific on running on maybe a slightly different race than the one you might have in mind. Yeah, on the whole, luckily, I don't have too many owners. No, I don't think they'd stay. But, but we, I will discuss in great depth you know, with them, which race, why this and that and the other. And it was a big decision made yesterday. Mm. And I was the one who was probably pushing too much to run. Okay. And then I went and sat with Shiga Hissa after the first race. And we went through it and decided, no, we cannot. Mm. And we go to Santa Anita instead. John. Uh, in the turf, presumably. Yeah. I still can't draw you into the classic with Mostert. No. No. You tell them to put it back to to, to, yeah. to Peter or something. But we'll be there. Oh, look, we've got it. We've got to finish. But look at all those horses. You know the declaration of war and even old Toast of New York and all these horses who've run with Swain, Giants Causeway, Saki. All these horses who've run well in the in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Is there any reason why you wouldn't run well? Kick Ten back. Kick he doesn't back. like the kickback. He wouldn't like the face. The kickback. Look, I don't know how long we've got. I've Not had horses long. that could go and breeze a mile in 30, 136 and mm. change on the dirt. Okay, so you horses. think, yeah, I'll take it. And I go and put them on the dirt, unless they can get onto the lead, which is a tough place yeah. to get to yes. in America. They get that kit back. They lose their action. <clears> they lose their breathing. They lose the whole of the rhythm. And they'll go and finish 30 lengths out the back. And I tried it with Roaring Lion in the slop, do you remember? Yeah, but he was a he was a shocking candidate for that, wasn't he, really? Oh, I think a terrible we, thing to say about the horse. <laughs> you should have run he Oasis. He was a champion. You should, I've still never forgiven you for not running Oasis Dream in the sprint. That's what you should have done. No! That was a terrible decision, he no, says in hindsight. No, it He was wasn't. never going to get a mile in a horse box. Oh, he would have got the mile. What? He would have got the mile. He'd never have got the mile. Yeah. Right. Isn't, isn't what you said? See, I love it. These trainers. <laughs> he listened. I told you, man. Before I in the grand, <laughs> before I before I draw a line to this, he would have broken the Dejure's track record in the Nunthorpe had Richard Hughes not been looking in the big screen. Richard was say, enjoying himself at York in the big screen and getting his pose perfect with the camera. On that note, I have to thank John Gosden for coming in today. A very 
very gamely sent me a text message at some ridiculous hour. Um, but thank you very <laughs> you much. You were still Con working. It was about two I was still working. Was still yeah. Yeah. Con congratulations <laughs> on what we think is a, a, a first trainers championship with Thady, which must be a source thank of huge you. satisfaction for the, the whole family. Luck on Sunday. Brought to you by Whirlpool. Bet with the world.